Hello, it's Friday the 3rd of March. I'm Gary Bowman. On today's show, I'll be looking back over the first two months of 2023, which is shaping up to be a compelling year for travel and tourism here in Southeast Asia. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. It's just me this week as Hannah is traveling to ITB in Berlin. So today, I thought we'd rewind back across the first two months of 2023, which given the disruptions of 2020, of 2021, and of 2022, is shaping up to be the most important year for travel and tourism in this region in living memory. In addition to an anticipated demand rebound, now that Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, and of course China, are fully open, there are major issues around travel and tourism and the environment, energy, water, and waste management, while travel and tourism infrastructure are being built out across the region. And of course, looming over everything are the ongoing economic impacts worldwide of Russia's war in Ukraine and the possibility of a global recession. So to kickstart the year, Hannah and I have tried to address some of the big ticket talking points that we'll all be following over the coming months. In the past two months, in January and February, we've produced shows on China's reopening and the new airports and high-speed railways being constructed across Southeast Asia. We've discussed ethics and accessibility in tour operations and carbon footprint tracking while on vacation. Plus, we've tackled tourism pricing in Thailand, a plastic trash report in Vietnam, and of course, everybody's talking about AI generative content. And global interest in travel and tourism in Southeast Asia is clearly strong. During the first two months of 2023, the Southeast Asia Travel Show has been downloaded in 56 countries and territories worldwide. Our top five listener markets across the first two months were the US, Australia, UK, Singapore, and Vietnam. Making up the top 10, Austria, Thailand, Malaysia, Japan, and the Philippines. The show has also been downloaded across the continents from Argentina to Egypt, India to Poland, and Saudi Arabia to Zimbabwe. So today, I've selected some of the key questions that Hannah and I have asked and attempted to answer with our guests and amongst ourselves over the past couple of months. These topics could set the tone for the travel and tourism year ahead. So firstly, let's rewind to January when our guest was Professor Wolfgang Art, CEO of the China Outbound Tourism Research Institute. And Hannah asked Professor Art what we should expect in terms of the balance between group package tour and FIT travelers as the new wave of Chinese outbound tourism starts worldwide. Well, there, there was a, a, a tendency that already before the pandemic struck, there were less and less mass market package tours. So tours where you only meet your fellow travelers at the airport and you have to run behind the flag of the tour guide. So that was already in 2019 seen as something uh, first time travelers from third tier cities would do. But if you were a citizen of, of Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou or Shenzhen, uh, you would not dare anymore to be seen to, to behave like, like a sheep running uh, with the other sheep. So it, it already was a, a clear tendency 
that more and more people were either traveling as FITs or a growing number of them were traveling semi-organized, which means that uh, you would have a group of uh, family or friends or colleagues and they would go to a tour operator and they would tell the tour operator what they want and uh, ask uh, the tour operator to, to put together a nice package according to their wishes so that they were still using a tour operator but not buying a tour out of a catalog, so to say, but uh, a customized tours to their special uh, needs and wishes, uh, but without the uh, uh, necessity for themselves to, to, to book all this stuff by themselves and maybe make a mistake or something like that. So, and, and that is certainly uh, con to continue that you will have uh, less and less uh, package tours and more and more semi-organized tours or FIT tours. And of course, for Southeast Asia, if people go uh, for a long beach weekend to Vietnam for the third time, yeah, they will not need a tour operator anymore. They, they can they can book this by themselves. So that, that will be easy. Of course, for specific tours, like going to Antarctica or going to the Amazon jungle, you, of course, will have to rely on, on package tours. got a list of the top 10 transport infrastructure projects across the region. So let's kick on with number one. And I think this is one we're both pretty excited about. We've both been following for quite a long time. That takes us to Indonesia, and that's the Jakarta-Bandung High-Speed Railway. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so this is like the first true high-speed railway in Southeast Asia. I know that high-speed rail is a term that a lot of uh, governments like to use about their projects. But this is actually a real high-speed railway, which will have a top speed of 350 kilometres an hour. So it's going to be a, a groundbreaking moment in the history of railways in Southeast Asia. We, we still don't know what the top operating speed will be because the track will only be 143 kilometres long, but it will be able to operate at that speed. So maybe it will operate at 250 kilometres at the start, which will still be the fastest train in Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, James? This project has been running, what, seven years now, as with most uh, infrastructure and particularly railway projects. It's gone hugely over budget. There have been long delays. I think Indonesia and the Chinese government, who are jointly constructing and developing this project, uh, announced, I think, earlier this week that there's another cost overrun of 1.2 billion US dollars, which I think takes the total project cost up to about 8.5 billion US dollars. It's expensive. But as I said there, one of the key in, key elements of this project, James, is Chinese state um, companies being involved, railway companies. So the railway tracks, the trains themselves, and the railway operating systems are all coming from China, and they're using this, aren't they, as a kind of showroom for their technology for other countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's right. So there was a a pretty high-profile battle between China and Japan to win this contract. So uh, China won out in the end, and they they might get the the chance to continue the, the track all the way to Surabaya. Uh, but you know, the, because it was a a competition between two countries, you know, there is like speculation of whether the um, both parties you know undersold how much it would really cost and then obviously the prices have gone up or maybe they just didn't realize how expensive it would be to work in Indonesia with trying to acquire land uh, and there's also been problems with like building the railway they didn't realize how 
hard it would be to build on like you know a volcanic island basically got like the um, drilling into the ground is a lot more difficult so there's a lot of uh, issues that they've had to deal with So, Hannah, let's start straight away. No surprises about where we're heading first. No, it's got to be Thailand, isn't it? I I don't think we can do a month without talking about Thailand and something that they've decided. Um, But this is finally this 300 Thai baht tourism fee, which, again, I feel like I've been talking about with you, Gary, for probably the last two years or so, right? They keep saying we're going to implement it and then it gets postponed and then we're going to implement it and then it's postponed. But this time it really seems like it's going to go ahead. Um, From June, they're going to implement this tourism fee of 300 Thai baht for air travelers, 150 Thai baht for those arrivals over land or water. But Gary, the figures don't quite stack up, do they? (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. We have been talking about this for a very, very long time because as we know with Thai bureaucracy, it takes a long time and then it goes through the, the cabinet and then it gets approved and all that kind of thing. But as you said, it doesn't like it's happening from June. The, the fee, as you said, is tie, is 300 baht. But the underpinning figure that they hope to achieve, or the, the tourism minister said they hope to achieve this year, is 3.9 billion Thai baht. 3.9 billion. Now, if you actually do the math there and you work that out, that would equate to a minimum of 130 million visitors in just six months because it doesn't start until June. So those figures clearly have no correlation to anything. But I think we have to then look a little bit further at this, Hannah, because I think Thailand is obviously clearly hoping that 300 Thai baht, that's what, that's less than 10 US dollars. I think they're just hoping that visitors will just accept that and just pay it. You know, it's not a huge amount for most tourists coming into the country if you've paid uh, for flights and hotels. But it's the concept here is why is this actually being introduced now? uh, And what's the purpose? Now, the Thai... Tourism minister said that part of this sum will be used to provide health and insurance coverage for tourists. Part of the sum, now remember they're talking about 3.9 billion Thai baht. Uh, And then later in the same article in in Bangkok Post, it said that the annual figure for tourism health costs in Thailand is around 300 to 400 million. So that's a huge shortfall on this figure of 3.9 billion that was proposed. So what's the rest of this going to be for? And where's the transparency? Now, is this going to be used... For development, is it going to be used for marketing? Is it going to be used for sustainable tourism? Absolutely no, no word on that. Um, and I think the lack of transparency here is is a story that I think will run and run. I mean, I originally came across you um, through the work that Tripseed was doing to make travel accessible through modified tuk-tuks. I'd read some article, I think you were featured in TTG Asia, I think, all about these modified tuk-tuks that you've done that allowed um, travelers even in wheelchairs to be able to experience Bangkok. And I found that absolutely fascinating. How did you come up with that niche? Why Why did you, you, you think that that might have something there? As you know, it's a very saturated market. Um, and I think I find there's very little differentiation between product and the, and the way businesses are hand- managed. You know, aside from just trying to, to treat people better and our employees better and things like that, you know, how do we actually stand out to our customers with things that they care about, with with product and, and with our service. And, and I think it's the, the accessible tuk-tuks and, and the accessible travel in general, um, I think it's something we kind of stumbled on a little by chance. Um, we'd actually been researching electric tuk-tuks um, to try and decrease our environmental footprint without relying too much on carbon offsets. Um, as we know, they only help so much. Um, 
And for us, it was really important to look at how we can actually minimize our carbon emissions at the source um, rather than just offsetting them. So it was actually through that research that we first came across these accessible tuk-tuks as they happen to also be electric. And that kind of rang a few bells for us in terms of that being a really great idea. Um, so from there, we, we, we began to do a bit more research into accessible travel and saw that nobody was really tapping into this market. Um, there's a really good operator around Ayutthaya, uh, but nobody was doing this at, at, a, at a sort of nationwide level across the whole country. And especially with the larger DMCs, there's, there's no, no accessibility built into their product ranges at all. You know, we decided it was something that given the potential size and scope of that market, it was definitely something that it was worth experimenting with for us. So we started learning everything we could about accessible travel, speaking to experts in the industry, speaking to travelers with disabilities to, to try and identify what barriers they face um, and, and really just trying to improve our knowledge in the area. And then we started looking at, at different regions in Thailand and what could be possible, you know, what isn't possible. And, and you just find this enormous lack of um, accessibility information. Uh, I mean, the, the best you can really find is sort of, um, you know, tick boxes on, on booking.com and things like that that says a hotel is wheelchair accessible. But there's, there's absolutely no information that tells you, you know, uh, what, what is the, the toilet height? What is the height of the toilet seat? What is the width of the doorways? Is the shower a roll-in shower? Are there grab rails available? Um, and these are all questions that, you know, disabilities are so, can be so different from each other. These are all questions that need answering for people that want to make an informed decision about how they travel. So we actually look towards um, Wheel the World, um, who are a fantastic organization, making some big changes to, to the ease of, uh, you know, making travel more accessible. And, and they've come up with this fantastic accessibility mapping system, um, which, uh, and, and we've sort of worked with them on, on adopting part of that and uh, not to segue too much, but, you know, another of these issues is where there is accessibility information available, there's no standardization across the industry. So everyone's got things in different ways. So we tried to adapt um, Wheel the World's um, accessibility mapping system so that we could at least be part of the solution and not part of the problem in making our data accord to some kind of standards. Leaving that aside, I'm moving to Cambodia. Now, uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen um, announced that Cambodia has spent over $100 million to host the 2023 Sea Games and the ASEAN Paris Games. Um, so they've, they've spent that over about three years. They estimate about spent around $40 million um, each year for the last three years. And they've just launched their 100-day countdown. They're clearly seeing this as it's going to be an event that's going to put Cambodia on the map, that's going to boost tourism, that's going to boost the economy. Um, and I just thought it was interesting that, that they have put all of this money into um, promoting these, these games. And, you know, it's this, this trend, isn't it, that we've, that we're seeing, you know, worldwide with in the past, lots of countries putting in lots of money to host games like the Olympics and so on. And does that legacy then continue? Is it worthwhile, ultimately, to have done that? The jury is kind of out. Yeah, it's a big topic. I agree with you, Hannah. It's, it's one of those issues. And particularly over the past two years, you know, we've seen uh, two Olympic Games in the Asia-Pacific region, the, the Beijing Winter Olympics and the Tokyo Summer Olympics, where they took place during the pandemic. So all that investment amounted to very, to, to very little um, because there were no tourists, there were no spectators. 
Uh, and for those two countries, you know, they'll be counting the cost of that. Cambodia is promoting this as, you know, the first games after the pandemic or after the, the lockdown period, after travelers recovered in the pandemic era. So the optimism I can see is there. It's building new infrastructure around the games itself. That's important for Cambodia. Um, but whether it will actually attract the numbers that it's talking about, I guess, remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, the cynic in me says, why not take that $100 million and use it instead to uh, to fund a tourism campaign and let people know <laughs> about the success that Cambodia has had during the pandemic? But I'm not in charge, so. <laughs> That's why we're not politicians. <laughs> exactly. Um, and moving on then. The use of AI-generated travel content. And this, obviously, you know, chat... GPT has been in the headlines a lot, but I noticed that you, you I think you were actually talking about it before um, this is all um, came up and, you know, a travel content creator, uh, what kind of role can AI generated travel content play in travel? Should it play any role in travel at all? It's a good question. I mean, I think as it stands, as what it's producing at the moment, I think anyone incorporating it into any kind of travel publishing is it's completely ludicrous, but that won't stop people from doing it. And I think I think there's a whole bunch of problems with it. Um, probably the one that uh, uh, annoys me the most is consent. Like publishers haven't been asked whether they they consent to having their material used to teach this AI thing. Um, so I think that's a really big problem. And so ChatGPT uh, doesn't credit where, it's, uh, where it sources data, but I saw a, a story this morning that Bing's version does. So I think that's a big difference. Like, I think knowing the source of where your information is coming from is vital. You know, I want to know whether who, who said so-and-so. Um, but as a general product, I mean, you can sit there and play with it. And like I asked it, you know, you can trap it. I asked it, like, was Pol Pot a patriot? And it came back with, like, a very wishy-washy, on-the-fence answer. And, I mean, you can get it to say stupid things. I've seen some extremely bad travel content that has clearly been written with it. You know, there's riddled with inaccuracies and, and that kind of stuff. I'm yet to see anything really compelling. Um, and I think a lot of the interest that I'm seeing is from the publisher side of things who are seeing it as a cost-cutting measure. They're, they're not going to have to pay these pesky freelancers and travel writers anymore. They can just get AI to write out a 300-word synopsis of way or whatever. And I would say my advice would be do that at your peril um, because I don't think the information is there yet. It does, I think, something that I've seen that is quite useful is like if I'm writing something, I can say, oh, I don't know, I'm writing something about the mating of the Mongolian butterfly and it'll, it'll give me out a bunch of bullet points. And so then I can sort of think, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that one. So like that kind of thing, a prompt that's helping me to think of other things to write about, I totally see the, the benefit there or at least the time-saving uh, side of it. But sitting down, like I've seen people on LinkedIn talk about how they're building this completely into their product, and I just think it's bonkers crazy. 
But um, I guess we'll find out, you know, down the track. And I mean, it will continue to iterate. It will continue to improve. But at the end of the day, artificial intelligence is a real misnomer. And it, what it really is, is a regurgitation machine. So it's garbage in, garbage out. It's whatever gets fed to it. That's all it has. It doesn't actually learn anything. It's not able to create new information. All it can do is re reorder um, existing stuff that has been uh, has been poured into it. Yeah. So there was a report out looking into plastic waste, and basically it was talking about um, the amount of plastic waste generated, particularly by tourists in Vietnam, and. It was estimating that in 2019, it was about 116,000 tons of plastic waste. So in terms of the split between it, um, it's it's more or less 50-50. So around 61,000 tons of this plastic waste in 2019 were from domestic tourists. Um, 55,000 tons came from international tourists, but there were only 18 million international tourists. So I guess you could then argue per person, their international tourists are throwing away more plastic waste than domestic tourists but the big question is how do they know <laughs> whose waste is whose Gary <laughs> you'd love to have been on the research for this wouldn't you how on earth do you measure that I mean it is an interesting report we shouldn't deride it too much because Vietnam is one of the world's largest contributors of plastic waste into the oceans it has a, a dreadful record of recycling plastic and re upcycling plastic a lot of it does go into the waterways so this is a it is a very very valid report in terms of raising awareness that this is something that tourism has to be much more attuned to um, but as you say dividing up those numbers they're, they're not underpinned we haven't seen any um, deeper dive into how those figures were calculated but they make headlines and i guess that that's the, the importance at the moment yeah exactly and hopefully that will make some impact and wake up some of the the local governments that you know this kind of thing is being reported about vietnam and that brings to a close this week's compilation show. Don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments via our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but I'll be back next week with a special guest to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism. See you next time.